0: Good morning. Uh, I'm John Glazer. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato, and I want to welcome you to this Cato Institute event looking at U.S. policy in the Middle East. There's a widely held view among policymakers in D.C. that uh, the Middle East is of uh, great geopolitical and strategic importance to the United States and to the world, and in order to secure a number of vital interests in the region, the United States has to have a military presence there. And that's a view that's come under increasing strain uh, in recent years, perhaps spurred by the enormous cost in blood and treasure that we've expended there over the past few decades. I'm uh, delighted to be joined by a group of distinguished experts to explore just what the United States needs from this region and how we should best go about uh, getting it. Rebecca Heinrichs is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. Justin Logan is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Jeffrey Martini is a senior Middle East researcher at the RAND Corporation. And Patrick Porter is professor of international security and strategy at the University of Birmingham. And he's just recently had an article in the journal Security Studies looking at this very question that I encourage you all to look for. Um, for the audience, you can submit your questions via the Cato webpage for this event. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and you can use the hashtag FP. Um, what we'll do here is uh, I'll have the speakers make opening s- statements, and uh, following that, we'll have some Q&A. Uh, Rebecca, I believe you're up first. Why don't you take it away? Oh, just a second. We have to unmute you. There you are.
1: Okay. Go ahead. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to present uh, on this discussion with this panel. It's a privilege and um, and so what I hope to do now is to set the table for discussion. Um, I'm going to, I've got three kind of baskets uh, for my remarks. The first one, uh, I'm going to lay out where are US forces, generally speaking, what are those troop levels throughout the Middle East? Just so we, we know what we're talking about here. And then what do um, what, what do our senior military officers say when they go to Congress and they testify about what, what it is that they're doing in what are U.S. enduring interests there, broadly speaking? And then uh, my second basket would be what, what I think we should be doing moving forward, broadly speaking, as a matter of policy, how we should approach the region um, based on uh, what, what those interests are. And then third, I think for the for the purposes of of clarity, I I just want to kind of take off the table of what I'm not saying, what I think the United States should not be doing, and I think that that will uh, lend itself to a more fruitful discussion, so we can see where our points of agreement and disagreements are more clearly. So, in the in the first basket here, um, just starting off is most interest to the general public right now. What what occupies the most uh, takes up the most oxygen in the media is where our troops are in Afghanistan and Iraq. There are 2,500 U.S. service members in Iraq, 2,500 U.S. service members in Afghanistan. This is the lowest number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan since operations started there in 2001. um, At its highest levels, uh, of course, was in 2011 at 98,000 troops. And um, the Biden administration is now saying what the Trump administration did, which is, for Afghanistan in particular, that um, any further reductions um, will be, quote unquote, conditions based. And they're working out what their policy is, whether it's going to be continuation of the Trump administration's policy um, with this, quote unquote, peace agreement um, with the Taliban. Um, my own view is that the Taliban will not honor its uh, commitments there. And so that's not a great um, uh, way to make uh, decisions based on what what the Taliban says it's going to do and then what, what it is going to do. Um, but, but I have been supportive broadly speaking of, of giving that giving that a shot at least uh, to to prove out to our allies and partners that um, that we gave it a shot and that it, it can't be done or that's not a fruitful way to move forward. There are 60,000 troops currently stationed around the region though, Um, perhaps more than anywhere else in the Middle East. um, I always think it's important to to bring this up, that there are 93,000 U.S. troops and family members stationed in Bahrain, um, and they are living among uh, the locals there, including, of course, Iranian proxies. And then um, speaking of Iran, we have deployed more than 14,000 troops to the region since May in response to Iranian malign activity. Some of these numbers might might be off. uh, just because they're fluctuating and you know things are changing. And I'm pulling from some articles and reports and testimony that are, are a little bit you know, one or two months old and things are changing. And so what are they doing there? They are uh, working to prevent attacks on the US homeland, of course, uh, they're countering destabilizing regional influence, that's their words, uh, commander's words. I mean, I would just, for, for clarification, Iran is the greatest source of destabilization throughout the region. And so US forces are there countering Iranian malign influence. How they US diplomats talk about that is obviously going to change um, during the Biden administration versus the Trump administration because of the policy uh, differences regarding things like the Iran deal. And um and then also preventing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Um I would just put put there too, and I'll talk about this in my second basket, I guess. Um, ensuring uh, non-proliferation. And so to do that, you know, you don't want Iran to become a nuclear power because then you could inadvertently kick off nuclear proliferation with Iran's um, enemies who, of course, are not going to want to remain a non-nuclear power when Iran does have a nuclear weapons capability. (laughs) And then ensure that freedom of navigation through international waterways, in particular, those energy choke points. Um, So moving on real quickly uh, to to Category 2, so what, what should we do? Um the way I think about this or the the way I, I kind of approach this, um, in organizing policy in my own thoughts is one, you know, we really do have to have a uh, a very disciplined view of of what these threats are and 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 how serious and pressing they are, right. and, and, and always kind of in, in um, interrogating those assumptions because some of those assumptions have changed over the years, especially since we first uh, went into Afghanistan after the attacks on 911. Um, So we have to have clear eyes about about the threats to the U.S. homeland in particular, what our interests are, and I would argue um, pretty forcefully because I do consider myself um, a realist, but unlike um, some realists, I do think that um, U.S. policy should be aligned with U.S. mores. Um, My argument or criticisms over some of U.S. policies throughout the region is not that the United States considered uh, values too much, it's that we didn't have them properly aligned and didn't constantly evaluate them to make sure that we we're actually doing what we're trying to do and that we're making appropriate sacrifices that are um, also moral and whether or not they're achieving those particular outcomes. For example, um, it, if if it is still a, a goal of the United States to give uh, Afghani women um, greater, um, Protections of their natural rights, human rights, however you want to characterize it, knowing that there is a philosophical difference there. You know what is the what 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 can be done and what should be done. I would argue, so many years later after going into Afghanistan, that sacrificing American blood and treasure um, for that particular mission is is not wise nor moral. Um, but um, but then but so then that kind of gets to my third point there. The third criteria: what can be done realistically. So just to recap, you know what is our what are the threats? What are our interests in line with U.S. mores, and then what can be done realistically? So with that um, in mind, um, I think great power competition um, requires the United States to to consider how the United States um, can compete with China, in particular, as the major source of the major uh, threat to the United States um, existentially, and then um, Russia as the the junior partner. Uh, increasingly to, to China, what those interests are and how the United States should compete with them um, in the Middle East. And um, that could be its own conversation, but I, I think it's important to kind of put that on the table. Important to note that, you know, as the United States pulls um, out of particular regions or doesn't, doesn't deem something as a as a significant interest, then um, you could be ceding that to China. That might be something the United States decides to do that it's worth it, understanding that there are limited things that we can do. Um, but I would say it's something that we do have to grapple with. Um, I think it's worth noting that there was a, a recent joint naval drill by Iran, Russia, and China in the Gulf of Oman recently, um, which I think underscores the point that our our, our adversaries are looking at the region clearly, um, obviously, and, and so we, we should look at it with them in mind as well as we think of major power competition, great power competition. Um, we should maintain, I would argue, a smaller, more disciplined mission there to destroy these proto-states. Uh, Islamic state, um, you know, states like ISIS, um, Al Qaeda, looking at their strongholds, the actual physical caliphate. Um, and you know, I'm not suggesting that the United States kill every terrorist wherever a terrorist goes and hides. Um, but I do think that it has been a worthy mission to make sure that those, uh, that those strongholds do not continue to, to fester and grow. And, um, but that the United States should be working with our partners and allies so that we're not carrying that load primarily. Of course, we're not. We're not on a post 9/11 footing on, on that front um, um, anymore. We have much smaller, as I kind of went through, some much smaller troop levels, and um, and we really are just primarily supporting those local governments. And those are the and, and those those local fighters are doing the the primary um, sacrificing both in blood. Um, in particular in blood uh, primarily. And so it's it's not something I think um, that, that the United States is taking on. And just to, to underscore that point, we have more troops surrounding the US Capitol right now in Washington DC than we have in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Um, and just to, to show how the, I think the foolishness and misguidedness of that, I don't know who they're defending against in particular yet. Um, mothers pushing their children along the Capitol grounds, I think during cherry blossom season. Um, and then, uh, and then we uh, we do have an interest in in having a stable global energy. That that's that's something that the United States can't fully get away with, even as the United States becomes more increasingly energy sufficient. Um, I I do think with that though that the United States um, needs to to grapple with the fact that you know other other allies and partners are have are more greatly influenced by disruptions through different energy choke points. And they should take a greater role in in policing, for lack of a better word, that's not so controversial. Those energy choke points, in particular, the Strait of Hormuz, but I think it still requires U.S. leadership to ensure that that happens and happens well. President Trump tweeted this um, tweet at one point that got a lot of attention. He was partly right, I think, and then partly uh, misapplied what he was saying when he tweeted that China gets 91% of its oil from the Strait, Japan 62% and many other countries likewise. So why are we protecting the shipping lanes for other countries many years for zero compensation? Um, he he is on to something there, and so the Trump administration did get working on having an international coalition there to to do some work and having allies and partners carry on um, more of the load for that. Um, but I think that it I think that that underscores though how important that is to uh, uh, China. I think I think he mentioned here China. China, China, China receiving 91% of the oil from the Strait. I think that that's a perfect reason not to hand that over to China to police, because that's an incredible power lever for the Chinese to be able to pull. Um, And so there is a US interest there in ensuring that that our partners and allies um, and the United States, of course, impacted by the global energy market, that that is safe and free and open. and then preventing Iranian hegemony by balancing powers like the Trump administration's approach over the last four years. Um, something that I think the Biden administration has completely backwards and wrong by publicly haranguing Saudi Arabia um, over human rights um, and uh, by focusing on trying to get this Iran deal, though, um, to give the Biden administration credit, it has not fully um, uh sacrificed or capitulated on, on anything quite yet. In order to get that Iran deal, though, I think the pressure will be great because that is a priority, but I think that should be taken into the larger uh, context of ensuring that Iran remains weak um, and that those pa- that those powers are balanced in the region and that those powers are based on the United States' relationship with, with Israel, um, supporting Israel as our greatest um, ally in the region, and then also working with um, a coalition of Arab States uh, to continue to to counter Iran, um, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, um, and others as well. And so uh, we should continue to, to to do that. And I think that um, I think that the, the Biden administration um, ha- has this particular area completely backwards in, in how it's approaching the region. And then number three, just just to wrap it up, to be clear, what I think um, our goals should not be, um, especially when we're at a time where we're not at the apex of American military economic power as we were in decades past. Um, We are in a a, a competition with China as a number one priority. We are shifting troop levels into the Indo-Pacific theater. We are working with our allies and partners uh, in the NATO Alliance to deter um, Russian revanchism um, against um, Eastern and Central European countries. Um, And so um, we do have to make hard choices and and so we we are we are shifting towards towards uh, focusing that i think the united states should should move quicker in doing that to deter chinese aggression um in, in in the near term um but uh but still understanding we still have a stake in the middle east so our goals should not be to tr- to transform the region into liberal democracies um i we need to be very, very clear about that. And whenever I say that, sometimes people will say, but we're not doing that anymore. And I would say there, it still comes up in plenty of meetings with allies and partners about metrics, uh, including before the United States or partners and allies can, can change or alter what we're doing in, in particular regions, um, that that issue does come up uh, quite a bit. And, and I would just say, you know, a couple of decades of being there, that there's been very little progress made there that of which these countries are self-sufficient. Afghanistan is the one I'm thinking of in particular. And so I don't think that that should be a a goal of the United States. Um, It's not to expand uh, neoliberalism's idea of universal values to the deserts of Afghanistan. And and we should not be haranguing, like I mentioned before, partners for their failure to meet our standards of human rights, uh, natural rights publicly, if those are things that we want to work on as we work with Saudi Arabia, making sure that they're not targeting civilians, for instance, in Yemen. I think that's a worthy endeavor. Um, but I don't think that we should be publicly haranguing our um, our partners as we pursue these uh, shared interests. Um, and then last, I, I, I would just say we should not um, uh, take the the foot off of our gas in our counterterrorism operations. One of the things I'm really concerned about the Biden administration is now the the um, the military and the CIA. New York Times reporting. This was confirmed in a recent hearing um, that they must obtain White House permission to attack terrorism. Now quoting from this article, attack um, terrorism suspects in poorly governed places where there are scant American ground troops, like Somalia and Yemen. Under the Trump administration, they had been allowed to decide for themselves whether circumstances on the ground met certain conditions in an attack was justified. I would just say one of the worst things that U.S. policy can do is to say that we're conducting this counterterrorism mission and then we're not giving our troops um, the the authorities they need to actually get the job done. The thing that vexes Americans um, even more than war fighting is fighting wars that we um, are not intent to win and win very quickly. And so um, so I would just push back on that and hope that we would move back to the Trump administration's um, policy of of delegating those authorities down to the folks who are actually doing the war fighting. And with that non-controversial point, I will turn the floor over to my colleagues.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. I think uh, we'll go to Justin Logan next.
2: Great. Um, Thanks a lot, John. Thanks to all the co-panelists for doing this. Um, My remarks today uh, draw on a paper that I did when I was still at Catholic University for defense priorities last September. Um, So I'm gonna try to cover kind of a lot of ground today. uh, And if someone has an objection or, or a question that hasn't been satisfied, maybe in the paper. Basic puzzle there was um, the United States is the, the American foreign policy establishment anyway is obsessed with the Greater Middle East. Um, it's a small, poor, weak region. Uh, we, it, it comprises, depending on how one counts, about three or four percent of the world's population, uh, depending on the time frame, three to five percent of global GDP. Um, and so, in those traditional power political terms, there's not a lot there. But at the same time, we've really really expended a lot of energy and lives and money over the region, not just in the past 20 years, but before that. So it's easy to say if you take our wars and include them in the exertions in the region since 9-11, through fiscal year 2020, the tally is at about $6.4 trillion if you take into account the long-term obligations that we have to service members, uh, healthcare and things over the long term. That shakes out to about $337 billion a year. It's real money. Uh, And you may say, well, look, what if we have a, a, a Robust Middle East policy that doesn't involve fighting a couple of protracted counterinsurgency campaigns. Fair. So the peacetime commitment costs about $70 billion a year based on the two best estimates that we have, one from Eugene Goltz at Notre Dame and one from Mike Lohanlon at Brookings. So $70 billion a year is a lot of money. And so in looking at this, I sort of was thinking to myself, there must be something else here, right? It's not the case that uh, the Nazis or the Soviets were going to seize the industrial output of Germany and we could tell ourselves a story about how that would make them into a power to rival the United States. Um, So there must be something sort of witchy about the Middle East that causes people to get anxious about it. Um, And near as I could tell, uh, we have three main uh, baskets of concerns. One is oil, one is Israel, and the other is terrorism. And so I sort of try to deal with these three uh, potential problems. Uh, I'm going to deal with them today in reverse order, in uh, descending or ascending order of complexity if I can. Um, so as Rebecca pointed out, we have about sixty or 70,000 troops forward deployed across the region, some of which are in Iraq and Afghanistan, but the vast bulk of which are not. They're forward uh, forward deployed across the region. So, the problem here is that fighting terrorism doesn't require large ground troop presence uh, forward deployed. Um, and indeed, you can argue that the forward deployed troops have a deleterious effect on terrorism. If you remember, uh, Paul Wolfowitz discussing the Iraq War said that one of the great benefits of the Iraq War was that it would allow the US to remove troops from Saudi Arabia. Um, given that they had been a great recruiting tool for um, Osama bin Laden. Well, they're back in Saudi Arabia today because the war didn't have over time the effect that was intended. Um, Everyone's sort of exhausted hearing about the low scale of the threat from terrorism. If you're an American, um, if you look 1970 to 2012, for example, the chance of an American being killed by a terrorist outside a war zone is about one in four million. From an actuarial or insurance standpoint, that's an exceedingly low risk. It certainly doesn't warrant uh, $330 billion a year in effort, and it doesn't even warrant $70 billion a year in effort. If a hedge fund responded to the risk of terrorism the way the United States has, it would not be long for the world. It would simply be selected out of the marketplace um, because the the investment does not commensurate uh, with the risk. Um, and the ISIS campaign, interestingly, offers a sort of counterfactual. If you imagine a terrorist organization that starts acting and looking like a state, right? We had the vaunted caliphate, which we found out we were easier—it uh, was easier to dispatch than than were the insurgencies in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, and for that's the reason. The reason for that, I should say, is because things that walk and act like states are easy for the US military to destroy. Once you have government offices, once you have identifiable uh, armies and police forces, et cetera, et cetera, we blow things like that up exceedingly well. So I just don't see a rationalization for what we're doing in the Middle East is dealing with terrorism. To be sure, we're liaising with some uh, intelligence services over there. We're engaging in some drone strikes and soft uh, raids. And those things can continue, but they don't warrant the kinds of effort that we've been engaged in uh, over the past several decades. We also have concerns about Israel. Uh, uh, Rebecca mentioned President Trump in his inimitable style. Uh, He said right before he left office, quote, we don't have to be in the Middle East other than we want to protect Israel. So Trump is Trump, and that's a certain oversimplification of things. Um, But I think there is something to that. We worry about Israel's well-being and indeed its survival. Um, And so part of that animates our policy in the Middle East. So what about Israel's survival and well-being? Well, let's start at the the highest level of abstraction. Israel has about 90 nuclear weapons, some of which are on dolphin submarines, which give it a secure second strike capability against any conceivable challenger. So Israel's survival in that sense uh, militarily is assured. Israel faces a moderate terrorism problem, um, but it's not clear what way the U.S. forward deployed presence uh, uh, ameliorates that problem. And I think you can talk about conventional military challenges from Iran, what sorts of challenges Iran poses to Israel. um, But I think these don't challenge Israel's security or certainly its survival in any meaningful way. So connecting what we're doing in the Middle East to Israel's security um, I, I really fail to see the connection there. The third and most abstract and difficult uh, problem to deal with uh, is difficult in part because policymakers don't like to talk about it candidly, right? It's the blood for oil argument. No one says, well, we're doing all these things militarily in the Middle East because there's lots of oil there, again, with the possible exception of Donald Trump in Syria. Um, but notwithstanding the fact that policymakers don't like to talk about it, it is the case that for 70 or 80 years, oil has been an animating uh, contributor of U.S. interest in the Middle East. And since they don't talk about it candidly, you sort of have to smoke out what exactly the oil concerns are. But I sort of uh, approximated them into two categories, right? One is that we fear that wars or regional instability or political disruptions in the Middle East Will cause shocks in energy prices, right? Oil is a fungibly traded world commodity. So um, if if the price goes up in the Middle East or in uh, Texas or wherever, it goes up everywhere. So we worry that if there were disruptions in the Middle East, those would have huge economic consequences for the United States in particular, and possibly even for the world. There are a couple of problems with this argument, the first of which is that there's very little evidence to suggest that these sorts of political disruptions uh, cause massive economic damage to the United States or to the world. So the the resource economics people aren't really read commonly by by security people in Washington, D.C., but if you care to read the annual review of resource economics, as I did, um, Lutz Killian, who's a distinguished scholar of this, finds, quote, overwhelming evidence that oil demand shocks collectively explain most major oil price fluctuations since 1973. So it's not the case that there's a supply disruption, but rather that there's a huge surge of demand. And we know as demand goes up, uh, price goes up as well, uh, given certain assumptions about supply. Um, and historically, there's not a reason, a lot of reason to credit the idea that when there are political disruptions in the Middle East, um, that those political disruptions cause huge, huge economic consequences. So Eugene Goltz at Notre Dame, again, uh, looked at all the major oil supply shocks since 1978 and quote, in five of six of the cases due to price incentives for non-affected suppliers to ramp up production, prices rebounded quickly. So it's just not the case that there's this great reason to believe that political disruptions and wars in the Middle East are going to cause huge economic consequences via volatility in oil prices, Um, particularly if you put on the other side of the ledger the $70 billion a year expenditure on the US side. You could sock a lot of oil into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or do a variety of other things at the cost of $70 billion a year if what you're concerned about is hedging against price volatility. The other concern that I think is less plausible than the uh, uh, supply disruptions is the idea of an oil hegemon in the Middle East. So if you imagine Iran conquered Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia conquered Iran, or somehow a country uh, obtained outsized influence over the production decisions across the Middle East, it's about 30 percent of world production. And if a state could do that, it really would become something close to a market maker in oil and could do all sorts of things with production decisions with an eye toward hurting uh, this or that energy-consuming nation. Um, So I think Iran, for a variety of reasons, has very little offensive military capability um, and so is not poised for regional hegemony in any plausible scenario. And maybe we'll get into this in the discussion People also worry about China or Russia plunging into the region and, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) becoming a regional hegemon in the Middle East, to which I would say, let them try. States is much more powerful than either of them. um, And we have really floundered there. So I couldn't wish a greater gift on a nicer group of people in Beijing or in Moscow uh, than the great task of trying to run the Middle East. Uh, Let them have a shot and see how it works out for them. So in conclusion, I want to point out that it's becoming increasingly difficult, well, not impossible to be three things at the same time. Number one, to be a China hawk, as is the Great Vogue in Washington these days. Number two, to be a thoroughgoing Middle East interventionist. And number three, to be a political realist, right? The age of unlimited guns and unlimited butter in the United States is over. And if I hear a defense hawk friend of mine again tell me that uh, they're going to continue doing what they've been doing in Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia uh, by uh, radical transformation of Medicare and Social Security, I would gently suggest that I see very little evidence that that is uh, right around the corner. So within the defense portfolio, something is going to have to give eventually. Um, And that's why you're starting to hear China hawks write things like the following. And I'll leave you with this little quote from an article that I found interesting. Civilian leadership needs to reconsider its approach to deterring Iran, which is putting pressure on military readiness. Every aircraft carrier, bomber task force, or fighter squadron that goes to the Middle East is one that doesn't go to the Indo Pacific or Europe. The US must grapple with these trade offs to master the challenges of great power competition. Simply put, America can no longer afford business as usual in the Middle East. And this wasn't written by two Cato scholars. Rather, it was written by uh, Donald Trump's Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs and a former defense advisor to noted Dove, Senator John McCain. So I think the time has really come for a serious discussion about divesting ourselves of a mission in the Middle East uh, that has brought more harm than good on the United States. I'll leave it there. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Justin Logan. We'll move on to Jeffrey Martini now.
3: Thanks, John. And thanks to the Cato Institute for organizing and hosting this event. Um, During my initial remarks, I'd like to position myself as advocating for what we might call a third way for US engagement in the Middle East. To do that, I'll need to sort of juxtapose my position to others. I don't, um, I'm going to talk about two other camps, but I'm not assigning other uh, speakers on this panel to those camps. As you heard from Rebecca, and from Justin, and you'll hear from Patrick, they're very nuanced thinkers and can't be collapsed into a simple camp, but I think there are two camps that are dominating the current debate in Washington about how to deal with the Middle East. So on the one hand, you have a group of analysts that I describe as pragmatists, and they tend to stress uh, the threat streams that are emanating from the Middle East and the need for very robust and muscular US military response to um, contain those threats. And the threats that they talk about, of course, are the residual threat from violent extremism despite the defeat of the physical caliphate in Iraq and Syria, the threat posed by Iran as a state, and the associated threat posed by proxies. And you know that state threat encompasses an aspiring nuclear power um, really uh, frightening frankly gains that iran has made in its missile forces in terms of the precision project you know pushing forward the precision the survivability and the range of its missile forces and also the threat posed by associated proxy groups and in particular iran leveraging asymmetric tactics to try to undermine the stability of u.s regional partners and then added to that of course you have this threat of great power competition as it lands within the theater. So in my view, those pragmatists tend to argue, look, for those that want to withdraw from the Middle East, you first need to take those threats seriously. They're not an illusion. And there is a military requirement to counter those threats. And I have some sympathy, frankly, with this opinion. Those those threats really are not illusory. So if we look, for instance, at the cruise missile and the attack UAS, strike on Saudi Aramco, that was not launched by unicorns. That was launched by Iran as a state. And that's a very real threat that the United States and others needs to counter. Or if we look at 2014, when um, jihadis were literally at the gates of Baghdad, that was also not an operation launched by unicorns. Those were hardened and very capable jihadis. It's a real threat stream, and it requires a response. And so I think the pragmatists have a very good point. Where I differentiate with this pragmatist camp, as I as I refer to them, is that I think sometimes they overstate the degree to which more U.S. military inputs will really lead to better outcomes. I think, uh, again, I'm not associating this view with Rebecca. She's very nuanced in noting that um the type of deployment she's she is advocating for are smaller than deployments during the counterinsurgency campaigns of the 2000s and i think both previous speakers pointed out that you know when the united states had great success in terms of its operations in the region um it was often with a smaller footprint approach like the buy with and through campaign in iraq and syria that led to the defeat of the caliphate so with that in mind, I have some distinctions with from the pragmatist camp in terms of the prescription, but I think they have something right in their diagnosis that there is a serious threat stream that the United States needs to be involved in countering. That's one poll, I think, of the debate. The other poll of the debate is occupied by what I think a lot of people self-refer to themselves as restrainers. It's really it's kind of an up-and-coming trend, I think. It, often come from a realist background in terms of a realism school within international relations and these analysts tend to look at the middle east and their core argument uh, again not assigning justin to this camp but you heard this in some of justin's remarks are that the united states and other western allies often overstate the strategic importance of the Uni- of the middle east and they look at the region and they tend to cite um, the decline in the United States energy dependence on Middle Eastern sources of energy, the fact that the United States is a net exporter. And, you know, one of the central arguments tends to be why is the United States sacrificing itself at the altar of these unwinnable conflicts, when in fact, um, you know, could better preserve its power, it could better preserve its military readiness either by having fewer forward deployments in the Middle East or by focusing on other regions where the United States has greater strategic interests. And again, there are some elements of truth to this critique. In terms of the prescription, I think one of the problems is that, in my view, one of the problems is that the restrainers are a little bit too dismissive of what the United States has at stake in the Middle East. you know, protection of energy and commerce flows, protection of freedom of navigation uh, is, is or is a, a a really important issue. And preventing the type of uh, preventing terrorist sanctuary and to, and preventing um, proliferation are very important missions. And so what I advocate for is is what I call this third way, to uh, approaching, to the United States approaching its engagement with the Middle East. And so I'll offer a couple ideas within that third way to get us started and then turn it over to, uh, uh, to the final panelist and then some some group discussion. So the two ideas I would have to offer is that I think the United States really needs to develop a more tightly focused strategy on managing partnerships as opposed to, in the Middle East, as opposed to simply reacting to threat streams. The threat streams from violent extremist organizations, from Iran and associated groups, and from great power competition are very real. But many of the risks and many of the problems the United States faces in the region actually emanate from its partners. And while Saudi Arabia is the current kind of bête noir and has become a bit of a punching bag, they are the easiest illustration of the dysfunction of current U.S. partnerships um, with regional states. So you know your partnership, frankly, is off the rails when you have a partner that, um, you know, allegedly, uh, well at least the crown prince allegedly orchestrated a kidnapping of the Lebanese prime minister in order to place pressure on the Shia bloc within uh, Lebanon. Or you know you have a partnership that's off the rails, frankly, when you have a partner conducting now a five year plus air war in Yemen with precious little attention to civilian casualties. Or you know you have a partnership that's a bit off the rails when that partner is consistently one of the top sources of foreign terrorist fighters in conflicts over a 30 year period. And you could go on and on without even having to mention the killing of a US resident. So those partnerships really need a rethink Um, And we need to make sure that they're advancing U.S. strategic interests. Instead of just reacting to threat streams, we also need a more developed strategy for partnerships. I think the Biden administration has made some positive steps in this regard, but there's much more work to be done. And while I use Saudi Arabia as the example, and they are the easiest example, there are a number of partnerships that would fall into this category. I think Egypt would certainly fall into this category and maybe to a lesser extent the UAE, but we have some really problematic partnerships right now. The second issue I'd like to bring up and here, having had both um, of the previous speakers talk about kind of the naivete of transformation, I don't want this to be implied as me advocating for the US orchestrating a transformation and certainly not a democratic transformation in the Middle East, which I don't see as in the offing, at least in the near term. But I think the United States could invest in trying to address some of the sources of instability in the region. And for those that say, well, the United States has tried this for decades, I would argue that's not the case. The United States has tried, um, in my mind, unwisely to remake two societies in Iraq and Afghanistan. But in general, our response to the region has been heavily military and not addressing some of the drivers of instability in the region. And you can do this through bolster diplomacy. You could do this through economic initi- initiatives that include heavy public, uh, private sector input. Um, but at some point, you're gonna have to deal at what really drives instability in the United States and the fact that the United States is at risk always of losing pr- uh, priority partners to instability, which could be addressed. So I'll leave my remarks for there and turn it over to uh, Patrick.
0: Thank you, Jeff, Patrick, go ahead.
4: Well, what is there to say? I mean, as as the one university academic on this panel, uh, the temptation is to be all annoying and come in and say how nuanced everything is. Uh, But I don't wanna do that. Uh, What I wanna do instead is to make the beginnings of a case for abandonment. Um, That is, I think the US should draw down from this region. And when I say that, I mean not just remove its military presence, but to give up certain roles that it's tried to play the role of guarantor, stabilizer, peace broker, armorer. And I think that I'd like to make the case that Washington should recognize what we call the greater Middle East is no longer worth the candle. It's no longer a significant enough global power center uh, that warrants embroilment. And so I want to make just two simple points here. First of which is the is the issue of waste. That is that the Middle East, as we see it, uh, the problem is not primarily America's policy. I'm going to go easy on the US today, partly because I'm going to foreign accent talking about America's foreign policy. I'm going to talk about the region itself. That for too much investment, there's not enough return. And so it's time to rebalance power and commitments. But secondly, I also want to offer a critique uh, uh, of, uh, of the idea that the US can stay in the region and do things better. What we're being offered, if you like, a kind of what I call primacy light, a smarter, lighter, more disciplined version of primacy. And I want to argue why I think that's very difficult to do and not worth it. So the first point, waste. Nothing is forever in international politics. Um, The Middle East used to matter more. What we call today the Middle East and North Africa, it used to matter more. Uh, In fact, in the 19th century, this is a part of America's whole early history of the early Republic. uh, North African states were claiming divine permission uh, to attack and enslave uh, U.S. crews, U.S. ships, and demand extortionate tribute. And so the U.S when its demands that this stop were refused, built a Navy and under Presidents Jefferson and Madison bombarded those states until they stopped. Uh, It was an example of setting achievable goals, uh, laying down credible deterrence and making it clear that anyone who attacked US shipping lanes in the open seas had hell to pay. Well, the US is now more powerful. Uh, Its shipping is no longer international fair game And the region itself has declined to sort of 3.2% or something like that of global GDP. It's declining in salience. So now, being there as hegemon, leader, um, costs too much for not enough gain. We've heard a bit about blood and treasure. That's often the way in which we measure these things. Is it worth the blood? Is it worth the sacrifice? Is it worth the treasure? Of course, the idea of waste and scarce resources is intellectually contentious these days. Um, You may have noticed in the era of modern modern monetary theory that many regard on both sides of politics the idea of fiscal waste as as contentious, that in fact, the US uh, with the reserve currency and in an era of low interest rates can go on fighting credit card wars can go on borrowing uh, can go can afford the cost of international primacy in Europe and Asia and the Middle East and do all of it at the same time if only it had the will. I I must say I disagree with that and I think it's a a very dangerous experiment to run. But let's talk about another material commodity which is unquestionably scarce and precious and stretched and that is the commodity of time. In 2015, it was estimated that under President Barack Obama, the National Security Council, its main meetings allocated 80% of their time to talking about the troubles in the Gulf. Quite significant, given that that was the president that was trying to carry off a pivot uh, to Asia. In other words, uh, even a reluctant president can be sucked back in quite easily by the idea that the Middle East matters. We've also heard uh, from recently, uh, I think, a successful nominee uh, to the Pentagon, uh, Colin Carl, When he was last uh, working in government, advising Vice President Biden, took 13 trips to Israel and had over 100 meetings. This is a significant upfront cost of actually quite a a rare resource in Washington at a time when there are many things demanding the country's attention. And if you in fact track back from 2015, you see something worse, which is uh, a chain of inadvertent time-wasting, I would argue, consequences both of the region and of policy in the region obama's nsc was dealing partly with uh the consequences of libya uh, the the war of the liberal humanists which resulted in further chaos and open-air slave markets and an islamist presence but he was also dealing with the eruption of the islamic state as, as we've heard where apparently a well-armed group of rich Client states in the Gulf uh, felt they couldn't roll it back themselves, which is, a, is in itself a revealing sign of the downsides of over dependency on US patronage. But in turn, the Islamic State spawned out of a number of forces the US couldn't prevent or control, and in some ways inadvertently made worse uh, sectarian turmoil, exploding discontent, the interlocking of war and revolution a sprawl of conflicts, authoritarian versus revolutionary versus Islamist Sunni Shia. And of course, the protracted ongoing structural reality we're dealing with now, which is the Cold War between the Saudi and the Iranian blocs. And so the US under Obama was trying to navigate a set of nightmare choices all the way from Egypt to Bahrain to Syria between known and unknown devils, and that was partly nothing to do with america it's a hard region to govern it's a hard region to dominate as i'll argue but it was a little bit to do with prior policies and that was partly a world unleashed by the iraq war and the iraq war of 2003 came out of a long duel with the Baath party regime in baghdad and in in a sense was an attempt to cut the gordian knot of the gulf's problems Uh, and as we know its net effect was to create further chaos was to create exodus, was to open a whole front for Sunni Islamist forces, to strengthen, ironically, Iran's hand and to demonstrate to an onlooking world the value of a nuclear deterrent. And it also flew out of a wider war on terror, which was itself, I would argue, the result of embroilment in the politics of the Gulf. And this standoff with Baghdad, in turn, had flowed from an earlier Gulf War which was rooted in a quarrel between Saddam Hussein and his neighbours over oil production and the burden of the costs of another war, which was one which also the US was entangled in, the Iran-Iraq war, in which the US tried to balance both sides against one another Um, at the same time in a decade where it took up the policy of sponsoring armed Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan as tools of statecraft. So the US in a sense has been Trying, trying to fix things, trying to stabilize, trying to keep an acceptable balance, but laying down inadvertently these time bombs. Uh, and in a sense, it hasn't tried everything, I agree, but it has tried a lot of things. It's tried embracing the Muslim Brotherhood. It's tried rejecting the Muslim Brotherhood. As it's tried to support the dictators, it's tried to reform the dictators, it's tried to promote democracy. It's tried arming terrorists. It's tried killing terrorists. It's hosted endless summits to try and fix or ameliorate the the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Remember, remember, by the way, how long it was the Beyoncé opinion that that was the key to peace in the Middle East, that resolving that and the idea that it was in the gift of Washington to help resolve that would would alleviate the troubles of the region. And now, as it turns out, um, it's become rather marginal to Arab-Israeli relations. There is no panacea in other words. So the US doing all this in wildly complex conditions, whilst also trying to do other things in the world, only to keep discovering the limits of its power, whether it's George W. Bush, with the largest concentration of US forces in the region ever, in 2008, asking the Saudi King to alter oil production to ease prices and being refused, to Barack Obama foregoing the option to coerce Cairo, Cairo Egypt, out of the fear of losing a valuable foothold and an ally, to Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, emerging from his first meeting with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu asking, who's the superpower here? I've edited that statement. And we find as well, as well as all that, if clients aren't difficult enough, there is Iran, a state that won't crack easily, that is adapting to attritional sanctions, And that, in many respects, is incentivized by this world to restart its nuclear program. All of this investment, all of this time for not enough influence, indeed, in some cases, to have the worst of both worlds, to have alleged complicity without influence uh, in in a region where the US can't affordably subdue or eliminate adversaries and client states, still roughly speaking, most of the time, do pretty much what they want. And indeed, it's got to the point where the U.S. is even reluctant to apply coercive pressure. Indeed, we might ask the question so often, who is the patron? Who is the client in these relationships? So it's a hard place to dominate. Now, why is that? It's not just because of bad policies and it's not because of some orientalist idea of primordial savagery. Rather, I would say it's to do with a set of interlocking structural political problems the misalignment of interests between patron and client, certainly, but also allies want different things. There's the legacy, which which is not mostly America's fault of imperial settlements. There's indigenous divide and rule politics. There's the corruption of what we might call the rentier states. Um, And there's repressive regimes that both seek US protection, but also deflect criticism and blame and anger onto America when things are going badly. I would say that this is a time when the U.S. has many other worthwhile things to do. Uh, Recovering from a pandemic, rebuilding its economy, balancing against the techno-authoritarianism of China, yet it's still on course for multiple strategic competitions in the world. I would say too many. Russia, Venezuela, North Korea, Iran, as well as China. The good news is that in a post-American Middle East, Uh, It's going to be hard for anyone to dominate this region for the reasons I've set out. It's going to be hard for Iran, for all its formidable capabilities to do that, because the correlation of forces make it very difficult for any of the indigenous states, as it were, to do that. Uh, And there is no state in the region strong enough to pull that off. But even in the very unlikely scenario of a dominant Iran, I would say the US can live with it. We know, we can say confidently that Tehran would be deterrable from attacking US interests at their most intense. Why do we know this is true? Because hawks keep telling us that Donald Trump restored deterrence. This is a deterrable state. I'm not saying it's nice, it's a malign state in a malign region and and a ruthless region at that. So I hold no illusions, but it's the ability to actually protect America's interests from a remove in the region is key. Uh, last point, very quickly. I think it's in or out. I'd like to offer a non nuanced take on this point. Um, the notion of a smarter, lighter mode of primacy, I think, is ultimately uh, well intended, but an illusion the Biden the Biden administration is, is trying this. It's, you know, reallocating National Security Council staff more towards Asia or, or Europe, uh, it's emphasising a light footprint. It's trying to distance itself to some degree from from its client states. But the problem here is that it's not just up to Washington, as as the counterinsurgency gurus used to tell us, the enemy gets a vote. It relies too much, in other words, on the willing acquiescence, on the cooperation of the folks in the region, to keep things relatively quiet as Washington wants it to. The Taliban in Afghanistan are the most immediate point here, that if the US does stay beyond the date, the Taliban is likely to ramp up its offensives to use their vote to give the US some more seasons of really hard fighting, in which the argument becomes stronger to go back in to suppress the threat. The Arab Spring revolutions, it's true, have dissipated for the time being. The Syrian war may be in its final stages, but there is still a protracted security competition that could easily drag the United States back in. And given the fact that America having a larger presence in the Gulf has failed in many respects to prevent regional turmoil, it's hard to see a lighter footprint uh, sufficing and in fact, they could be just enough to create the temptation to go back in. Now, the US posture in the region in a light footprint sort of scenario is to retain the option of regenerating forces there. That's part of the point of of a calibrated policy with what what they call prepositioned equipment and stocks of supplies but there's something else that's being pre-positioned and it's something much deeper, and I would say much deadlier. And that is the idea that the Middle East still matters enough. The idea that it's too important in the final analysis to let go. And the fear of being seen to be abdicating global leadership and the refu- refusal in the final analysis to accept living with disorder, living with any kind of power vacuum. And that misperception I think is the most powerful source getting dragged back in and so uh i'll just end with something that um fuad ajami uh the great american uh, lebanese scholar wrote. he would have disagreed with everything i've said on this and indeed on most other topics but he he did say something about america's relationship with the greater middle east he said that uh in fact the the key thing is realizing what the us can't do as well as what it can do and his words were that there are forces in distant nations that we can neither ride nor extinguish. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, Patrick. I want to take
0: moderator's privilege and ask the first question here. Um, It's really about effectiveness. So we had we heard some competing visions about um, what US interests in the region are and how we should secure them. That framing sort of assumes that um, Policymakers and decision makers will be wise stewards of these responsibilities and be able to secure these supposed interests in an effective manner. And when I look around the region and think about US policy as of late, it doesn't seem that that is a, a reasonable assumption to have um, on the question of terrorism. You know, we we have to be in this region in order to mitigate the threat of terrorism. I think mostly what we've done since 9-11 is uh, exacerbate the problem and help proliferate the number of militant groups uh, in in the region, uh, partially through the power vacuums that we've created in places like Iraq and Libya. Um, On proliferation, I'm not sure that's necessarily a total success story. Uh, Israel obtained nuclear weapons very much against U.S. wishes, I think our attempts to deter Iran from getting a nuclear weapon have actually pushed it to develop the infrastructure necessary to get within shooting distance. Um, Oil, you know, we're there to protect the free flow of oil except that occasionally we wanna zero out Iranian oil exports or before that Iraqi uh, oil exports. So um, can we talk about how effective we are in uh, uh, securing these interests in practice? Um, Rebecca, perhaps we'll start with you and, and move on from there.
1: Because I realize oh, I spoke over a couple minutes. I'm
0: so.
1: unmuted.
0: Sorry, go ahead.
1: Okay. Um I, I would just say, you know, one of the things I always put back when I get that question is, you know, I whenever I make my arguments for what are US goals, you know, I'm not I'm not arguing for um Complete and ab- abiding, permanent peace. So I'm not looking for total, um, unobstructed energy markets. I'm not looking for complete and um, you know uh, uh, to- total stability. It's all—it's always, always relative, right? It's—it's it's relative, and it's always what can be done versus um, you know what, what are the options before us. So just to give a couple of examples. Um, and this is kind of to counter one of the points that Patrick made as well, about to the extent that the United States' actions actually achieved its goals, and what kinds of um, whether in action or inaction creates the goal we want. The United States' very quick withdrawal from Iraq and moving down um, troop levels during the Obama administration, that power vacuum did. Um, I don't. I don't ever like to blame. Um, the United, you know, it's not the United's fault for the creation of ISIS, it's ISIS's fault for the creation of ISIS, but that power vacuum uh did allow for that, um, for that, for the established caliphate to to, to grow. And so I think that, that that's a that's a um pers- a compelling counterpoint to to action or inaction for the United States and what is the result. Um and and I would also say um for on the point of Iran, um Yes, Iran is going to try to get a nuclear capability, but it is not American pressure that created that. The United States is acting in response to Iran moving in that direction. Um, I always find it very interesting for those who are advocating for a lesser American um, involvement. They always find that it is the United States' um, uh solely or putting greater um, emphasis on what the United States did, but we still have to contend with other actors who are going to make perceptions about their own interests and they're going to move in that way. And the United States has to adapt and respond. Um, And and so, um, you know, Iran is is moving forward to a nuclear capability. And I would argue that it's, um, you know, normalizing relations with Iran or the Iran deal and and giving Iran um, greater access to to um capital is is what furthers Iran and emboldens Iran to continue its own um and nefarious behavior. And then the last point I would make, I realize I'm trying to capture some of the counterpoints of the previous speakers while also answering the question just put to me. Um uh, it is it is also not true, back to the terrorism point, that the United States has created uh this um the ambitions of terrorists. to to attack uh, the West. Sweden is a counterexample who has been on the receiving end of of terrorism while not having a significant military presence. And so there isn't a direct correlation between committing troops and then um, being on the receiving end of terrorist acts. And, um, And we have had relative peace in terms of homeland terrorist attacks because of what the United States has done in the Middle East very difficult to prove that an absence of something happening is the direct result of something. but I think it is something that we do have to consider um, and and then the last and then if I may, um, it, the reason that Iran has been investing so heavily in its robust missile force and it does have the most diverse and largest missile force in the region is because it can't compete with the United States directly with our military services. And missiles are the cheapest, most cost effective way to compel and to coerce larger military powers. And so it is because of that, that that Iran does pose a very significant um, conventional military power that the United States has to deal with. And, and so I do think that, you know, I'm not advocating at all for increased military presence in the region, that the United States, for the forces that we do um, maintain in the region, that they need to have a much more robust ability to defend themselves. As we've seen, Iran has um, been more willing to use uh, missiles and then Unprecedented ballistic missiles from their um, from their own territory to to attack U.S. forces, and so we need to be able to protect U.S. forces there. It'd be immoral to keep U.S. forces vulnerable um, in that region, especially with the Biden administration. That I think Iran is not going to Patrick's point about deterability, Trump, like him or hate him, people believed it was credible that Donald Trump might actually use military force in retaliation to the death of an American service member or their family. Um, And that did have, I think, a de-escalatory effect on Iran and dissuaded them from further um, violence against U.S. forces directly targeting the United States and then persisting in attack until they killed Americans. I don't think that that's necessarily going to be the case with the Biden administration. So it's something to keep an eye on.
0: Justin Logan, did you want to talk about effectiveness in practice and perhaps uh, the question of whether ISIS arose as a result of a vacuum of U.S. power and whether Iran... Uh, has uh, built up uh, its capabilities in response or uh, 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 in, uh, in, in, as a result of U.S. weakness towards it.
2: Yeah, I, I probably went over in my initial remarks, so I'll be brief here. Um, I'll just point out that Iran's missiles, which have been mentioned several times, are not useful for compelling or coercing other states in the region. They're useful to the extent they're useful at deterring Uh, attack by other states in the region. And, you know, you look at what happened at a at the at the Saudi oil facility, um, you know, and we heard a call that the United States needs to be on hand to to prevent those sorts of things from happening. Well, we were on hand and we didn't prevent that from happening. Um, And it was a hardened facility and it didn't cause a lot of consequences. And I think, you know, there's been this tit for tat back and forth with the United States. It's partners and clients in the region and Iran for years. And there's a tendency on the part of the United States and on the part of Iran to look at the last move and say, we need to respond to their move. And this is a process that will go on literally forever um, because of nationalism, because of a failure to look at a back and forth cycle of violence that has gone on for decades. Um, It's just and you have to bring the strategic level of analysis back in to ask yourself whether engaging in this over several more decades into the future, God knows how long, uh, is worth the candle. And so, I, you know, I just find that this too often we start from a running start uh, in these analyses of, you know, how do we push Iran out of Syria rather than asking the question, what do we need in Syria um, and I think that that is 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 a, is a sort of impoverishedness of uh, of our analysis, and I'll just leave it there.
0: Jeff, did you want to respond to my question or any of the comments that have so far been made?
3: sure. i'll I'll also try to be brief. thanks, John. Um, yeah, so, I guess I would take issue with some of the metrics you used for judging success and the way you set up the questions. I do agree with Rebecca that the United States ultimate interest in countering terrorism or its primary uh, most important interest is in preventing what we call as ops the external operations. And as Rebecca said, it's very hard to, you know, wouldn't be sound to take the absence of that phenomenon or the relative absence. And attribute it necessarily to what the United States has been doing, but that would be a very positive metric and looking at um uh, you know pretty precipitous decline in, in exops. Um, the other thing, and, and here I would I guess break with Rebecca is I think that the joint comprehensive plan of action, a flawed agreement or not, really did set up a nice framework for preventing um proliferation and for preventing. Um, arms races in the region. And so I think that would be another area in which you could say some measured progress had the potential to be made. But I do take your point that, um, you know, it's sort of tenuous to trust policymakers with making great decisions in this region. I think many regret, I I certainly would account myself among those that greatly regret the 2003 Iraq war. I think that was a major strategic error. Although I think I'm complimentary of some of the things the Trump administration did. I think the Abraham Accords are are very much a good thing. I think maximum pressure was very ill-advised and has gotten us into this tit-for-tat exchange. I'll just uh, close with a couple of counterpoints in a friendly way, but I know that Cato appreciates debate. So a counterpoint to Justin is, I don't agree that Iran's missile forces are solely for deterrence. I think there's a real, that they're really viewing them also as a mechanism for compellence, And I think what they're trying to compel is actually first um, is a withdrawal of US forces from the region. I think they'd like uh, carrier strike groups not to transit the Strait of Hormuz and be in the Persian Gulf. And I think they'd like to compel a withdrawal of US forces. And that's partly to convince partners to um, basically withdraw access for the United States. And I do think the development of those missile forces are a very troubling uh development and then um, in terms of patrick's points it, which dovetail with 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 yours john i do agree that you know the outcomes have not always been great but we need to judge those not against it, not in an absolute sense but we need to judge those outcomes relative to well what would have been the counterfactual that is maybe we haven't made progress on issue area x well let's take a withdrawal of us forces or let's let's posit a withdrawal of us forces or let's posit um, uh, an absence of us engagement and think about the alternative outcome and i think you'll often unfortunately get to an even worse place
4: uh, over
0: patrick do you want to take us home before we go
4: to audience questions oh, very badly yeah no thank you um terrific points i just just three three quick simple points here um Firstly, the issue of uh, terrorism and the extent to which the United States uh, is in a war on terrorism and has a problem with international terrorism uh, because of uh, being in the Gulf. Um, I absolutely agree uh, with Rebecca that um, ...armed jihadism, or whatever you want to call it, would still be an issue. would still be a menace of some kind around the margins. It is for countries, as you say, who aren't there, but I do think ...there are degrees of intensity and priority here. And this is, in a sense, a very difficult this opens up one of the more difficult arguments from a few decades ago. Why did 9-11 happen? Why did the US find itself um, on the receiving end of this this atrocity? Uh, And That debate often broke down into a rather reductionist exchange of, well, they kill us because they hate us uh, or they kill us because we do bad things. I don't take either of those positions. Uh, I take the position that the US was embroiled in the politics of the Gulf. Now, the debate then has to be, is it worth it? Because if the US was uh, endangered very badly for being embroiled in a region that was much more worth it, then I would make more of a defense and say, look, you you do what you can to defend against it, but it's worth it it's a question in other words not just of counterfactuals as we've just heard but the question of cost and the question of 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 whether whether it's worth the investment i would say probably it's not that in fact international terrorism can be made more difficult in less violent less spectacular ways intelligence sharing police work the very fact that it's much harder now to conduct an international mass casualty attack not just because there's drone strikes going on etc but because uh, forward operating bases in Hamburg and indeed flight schools, I think, in Alabama are much harder to use. Um, so, so I just don't agree on that calculus. Look, secondly, on we do have to look at counterfactuals. Absolutely, let's look at the counterfactual on Iraq. What we've been presented with here is the idea that the Islamic State and the Caliphate and whatever it called itself was able to emerge in a vacuum because Obama uh, committed the error of of premature withdraw- withdrawal from Iraq. In other words, he carried out the agreement that was made between the Bush administration and the Baghdad government. What that's asking us to accept is that a relatively residual small American force or garrison somehow would have arrested the deep sectarian forces that were raging in Iraqi politics. After all, one of the arguments against invading Iraq, one of the realist arguments against invading Iraq is that it will unbalance the Iran-Iraq relationship, it will extend Iranian influence, and that will then also stir up conflict. And what happened? Sectarian, abusive government in Baghdad, which helped alienate a large constituency of people and the rest of Iraq, out of which this cauldron of discontent and, and radicalism out of which formed this force against which the expensively trained Iraqi army was unwilling to fight. Now, I don't want to pin all that on America, actually. I, I, I want to pin that on the forces in the region. And it would have been very hard to stop, which leads to my next point. And it comes I think there's a broader issue here as well, a, dis, a disagreement I'd like to bring to the surface and that is the relative weight of the quality of choices and the quality of personnel versus the dynamics of the region itself right So uh, consider this consider this statement. Um, this is from the former director uh, of for Egypt and Israeli military issues, the National Security Council over the period 2014- 2017. He said this about America's relationship with with Egypt. Egypt is ultimately too important to US interests to antagonise by withholding aid, coupled with scepticism regarding the US ability to pressure Egypt. Egypt. If Egypt is critical to the United States, and coercion is unlikely to change those policies with which Washington disagrees, the thinking goes, the only logical policy is to provide Egypt with unquestioning support This means that any deviation from the $1.3 billion in annual military assistance the US has provided Egypt since 1987 entails an unnecessary and unacceptable risk to US interests. Right. So that's a long term multi-president relationship of what you might call coercive leverage, where if you'll pardon my crude expression, the tail is wagging the dog. And I don't know what even a steering committee of Henry Kissinger or Machiavelli or Metternich could do about that.
0: Thank you, Patrick Porter. There's a number of questions uh, coming in about China. Uh, I think great power competition is on people's minds. So can we talk a little bit more about, first of all, whether China is likely to find an interest to get more involved in the Middle East uh, as the United States is? Uh, and if that's the case, what what should we do about it? How How should we respond? Rebecca, why don't you go first?
1: Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one first again. Um, I, I, I would just say uh, I re- really don't have much more to say on that point other than what I've beyond what I've already said, which is that um, it, it needs to be part of the conversation. So we just had some Senate Armed Services Committee hearings where we were asking CENTCOM commanders about this particular point. I think it's really just a budding consideration. How does this region Um, play into great power competition. I I, I would just reiterate the points that I made. Global energy market obviously relates to great power competition. Um, And so I I think that um, the United States needs to to rack and sack what we're doing and have in mind what we are willing to concede to the Chinese um, and, and what we're not. This notion, I think that the United States can just hand over the Middle East to China, and then that's necessarily going to be a, a net negative for the United States, um, I think is an illusion. I think that it's a nice idea, just hand it over, but I think it's um I think it would just empower the Chinese. And so they would be um they 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 might not, I would say that the Chinese might not, well I know that they wouldn't have as a hard time as the West does in dealing with the region because they don't have the concern for um uh the human rights problems that the West does, again, to our credit, but I think we've gotten tangled up in that as well as we try to pursue realistic ends. Um, if, if I may, real quick, since I I, I don't know how, we've only had a few more minutes, the, the, the only other point that I wanted to make too was, um, because I will lose sleep forever if I don't make this point, um, is to the point about Israel. And that's that one of the things that I think that this last presidential, not the most recent one, but the tr- Trump, Trump getting elected, really taught the American think tank community, really all think tanks, um, is that we need to do a better job of considering what the actual um, thoughts are and feelings and persuasions of the American people in foreign policy. And, um, and Israel and the defense of Israel and the security of Israel still is um, rather inelegant, maybe said by President Trump, a very strong concern in a bipartisan fashion of the United States. I think rightly so. As a d- democracy the size of New Jersey, I think just leaving Israel's security to itself would cause a lot more damage um, to the region, precipitate much more violence and instability. And so the United States still has a very strong role to play in providing the context for Israel then to take a significant, and they do, strong role in protecting itself. But I think there's all kinds of unintended consequences to just turn the region over either to China in terms of a great uh, great power competition context, or also just Israel's security solely to itself. I think that
0: would be a mistake. Justin, would you like to address the China factor and perhaps our protection of Israel?
2: Yeah, I'll just real briefly say that I think that the last 20 years of American policy in the region has been a total disaster for Israel. Um, Loosing the maelstrom of sectarian conflict across the region uh, has been really bad. Uh, It's also the case that, you know, Bibi Netanyahu thought that invading Iraq was going to be really good for Israel, uh, and I don't think that it was. So, um, again, I'm not... I raise the concern about the security and, and survival of Israel as, you know, what are the American interests in the region? I just think the extent to which we're doing it any good by being there uh, is really under scrutinized. And I'll leave the China stuff so that we can hopefully take another question.
0: Um, there's a, uh, uh, an unassuming question here from Russ Zarniowski. From Facebook, can you speak about the situation in Libya? What precisely is our policy in Libya, and how does it relate to our overall strategy in the region? Um, Jeffrey, why don't you go, and then we'll go to Patrick.
3: Well, I mean, <laughs> sorry, sorry for chuckling at this. It's a it's a difficult one to answer. I'll say that, of course, Obama cited Libya as his greatest regret in office. It was particularly Difficult case um, in, in terms of a coherent policy today. I think it's trying to broker some sort of unity agreement. You've had rival governments. You know, basically, you've had uh, a government in 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 Tripoli and the in the capital in the West. You've had rival government in Tobruk on the uh, Egyptian border, and Libya has really become embroiled in this proxy war where you've had. Uh, U.S. partners and competing blocks of U.S. partners, Qatar and Turkey on the one hand, um, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and although it doesn't get much attention, Jordan on the other hand, really backing rival factions. And so I think the goal now is to try to get the regional players like Egypt to be more responsible in backing um, this, new, this new government that is supposed to represent the country in its entirety. Um, and you know, the initial news has been that, frankly, uh, US partners that have previously abetted this proxy war are being a little bit more responsible in the immediate term. Um, of course, added to this mess, um, you have Russia intervening with, um, you know, private military contractors with the Wagner Group. So, uh, Libya is not one of those places that, um, typically exudes hope although i think the recent development of, of of having a new government and more responsible regional interaction is somewhat hopeful.
0: Patrick we'll go to you but uh, i'm trying to keep the conversation flowing while still getting questions in there there is a question just a straightforward question about uh, okay. oil and maybe we'll get going on zero libya well, I want you to you, start with Libya or start with anything, any response to to uh, the commentators. But but also, yeah. um, can we say that U.S. military presence in the Middle East does something good for global supply? Uh, uh, and uh, can we really sort of zero in on that and talk about the effectiveness? But Libya as well. Yes, go ahead.
4: OK, uh... I would say not not particularly. I think global supply can be assured and protected without all those bases, without all that embroilment, without all those relations with those states. Um, I, I don't mean to sound uncharitable. I just think that, um, as I said at the start, the, the US does have some interest in the region. They can be managed from a remove. Um, Libya. Uh, this is one of those ones where I, I imagine in the Washington DC debate, there's a kind of three card trick. Uh, I was one of those um, cynical realists that opposed the intervention in Libya and what I was confident would become a war of regime change and would, would have some inadvertent chaotic effects. And so I always take a little umbrage being asked to prescribe policies now um, in the sense of you know, well, what, what alternatives do you have? Well, I proposed an alternative a few years ago. Don't run an experiment in regime to change in Libya. Now, one of the arguments some of us made at the time was that Colonel Gaddafi's regime had voluntarily given up his nuclear program, and he gave up his nuclear program on the assurance that he could come peacefully in from the cold and indeed eventually reintegrate his regime into international polite society. Consider now the force of that example and what that did to other countries where the US has fallen into this habit of not listening to those who say, if you care about counter-proliferation, stop overthrowing regimes that don't have a nuclear deterrent. Right? Um, also, another thing that needs to be said about Libya uh, is that uh, one counterfactual put by the advocates of the Libyan regime change effort is actually, it was a good idea, it was just done badly. We should have done more in the follow-up. We should have given more aid money. We should have had more of a peacekeeping presence. Let's be very clear about this. Libya was not the West's to own, right? The Libyan peacekeeping, uh, sorry, the Libyan rebel forces, at least one of them made very clear they wouldn't welcome an international benign military presence. And Libya, for many other dysfunctional problems, was one of the richest states in Africa. So I think that misjudgment and that moment is something that the advocates ought to reflect on more often. But what actually happens in Washington, and this is something that reflects also wider debate, is that those who get things very badly wrong are not advocating, you know, some kind of ancient Athenian system of ostracism, but they are still enjoy the afterglow of a kind of celebrity life and a, a, very, a very lucrative one at that. I think there does need to be some sense of shame for making errors of judgment uh, in, in the D.C. debate, and, and there isn't enough of that.
0: Well, we have about seven minutes left um, I suppose I'd like to give people an opportunity for a few minutes of uh, final concluding thoughts. Uh, we'll go in the same order that we've been going in. Rebecca, go ahead.
1: I just wanted to take the opportunity to, to, to point out where I agree with Patrick, especially on Libya, that I think one of the things that has not been fully grappled with um, is the, the, the proliferation message that um, overthrowing Gaddafi actually has had. Um, that uh, overthrowing Qaddafi after, of course, they were not directly connected. We didn't um help overthrowing Qaddafi because he did because he disarmed, but obviously that's a stink that just simply won't go away. And it's something that we need to grapple with more seriously. Um and 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 also getting Qaddafi to disarm was a great achievement of the United States. We were part of the ones that did the great pressuring of that during the um leading up to and then through the invasion of Iraq, and that was the context of which Qaddafi did make the decision to move away from his arms and to disarm. And um, so there's some been confusion about that. That is the Libya model that John Bolton got in trouble for saying that in the context of North Korea, but he's right in terms of what that meant and how we actually pressured um, Gaddafi to disarm. But Peter's point is very, very well taken that there needs to be greater shame and some thinking about that. However, um, my last little bit, I would just say, you know, I, I still not want to be known as defensive of the Obama administration. And I, um, think that that was a mistake to overthrow Qaddafi with the help of um, um, others. Um, still, the blame, of course, still rests with Qaddafi himself. And the best advice I can give um, to would-be two-bit dictators is if you want to stay out of the sights of the United States and the West more broadly, the best thing you can do is be a, a more cooperative partner and ally and not be a brutal dictator to your people.
0: Justin, final thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'll just sort of go back to the general uh, uh, late motif of my remarks, which is to say we have too many of these discussions uh, starting from a running start. Right, we're given that we're engaged in Syria, given that we're engaged in trying to extract further concessions from Iran, um, in the context of the JCPOA. Given that we have these relationships with Saudi Arabia and Israel and Turkey, et cetera, what should we do? I think there needs to be a zoom out. What do we need from the region analysis so that those things can be connected in plausible ways rather than just sort of accumulated over this decades long um, inertia that we've really followed. Um, and, And I think I hope that this discussion contributes to the beginnings of a real strategic debate situating the Middle East in the context of the rest of the world.
0: Jeffrey,
3: thanks, John. So I'll just close by saying, sort of commending the different perspectives that were brought to bear today, and again reiterating, uh, you know, that I think that there's value to all of them. So for you know U.S. military planners that see the value in U.S. forward presence, I do too, and I think some of the recent initiatives, uh, frankly, are really welcome. Uh, We didn't have a chance, you know, this. This format doesn't give you a chance to really dive into that, but you know the U.S. military is pursuing this Western sustainment network, a more distributed uh, basing structure to protect against threats in the region. I think that's very smart. And so we see, for folks that see the utility of, of, of U.S. military responses and are planning for them, I think there's, there's some good news. And for those like uh, Justin and Patrick that I think are rightly skeptical of uh, sort of united states really thinking through what its strategic interests are and and avoiding that running start the sort of inertia that gets us thinking in a a certain way i think there's great value to that so i'll just commend Cato, cato for bringing together different perspectives and and underscore that i think each of them have a lot of value
4: patrick bring us home well thank you so much and thank you as well to the panelists and to the millions tuning in for withstanding one of the most annoying things that can happen, that someone talks about your foreign policy in a foreign accent. Uh, I think this is a point, in a sense, for my side of the argument, that in making the case for withdrawal, for for uh, drawing down from the greater Middle East to refocus in other areas, both international and domestic, the temptation is at, at times to offer a sunny or at least pleasant image of regions where America has left. Uh, And so you might argue, as some argue, that a post-American Middle East might, in fact, have much more stability in it, that Israel, as we've heard through the Abraham Accords and through the economic change and through the kind of economic modernization programs of countries in the region, um, is is reaching a greater uh, modus vivendi with its neighbors. Uh, and that by withdrawing America's support or patronage it might actually remove some of the moral hazard that emboldens regimes to behave badly. All of that of course is possible and part of the tragedy is we don't know until we do it but I think the best case for withdrawal has to accept the possibility of to some degree greater disorder. The real discipline and because Rebecca's mentioned this very important word the discipline thinking that has to happen on our side of the house is to make the case that the US in fact, not only can, but must learn to live with greater disorder in the region if it is to rebalance its commitments and its power and recall what its foreign policy is for, which is for the thriving and the the vitality of its own constitution, its liberties uh, and its civic life. And therefore we have to make the hard case that um the expectations of a unipolar era in which um, it was seen as in fact impossible to imagine uh, parts of the world without America in it have to be discarded and now takes uh, takes the um, important step of uh, gritting our teeth and accepting that there are parts of the world where the shadows will lengthen that we have to do it
0: I want to thank all of our speakers for their contributions. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm sorry, I didn't get to all the questions. Um, the video recording of this event will uh, be available at Cato's webpage, cato.org. Thank you very much.